Happy New Year. Happy 2022. Welcome to the Ethical Marketing Podcast. New Year, new podcast. Over the next few podcasts, we're going to be switching things up a bit. We're going to be just making it a slightly different format and we're going to take a different direction. Still going to be having great interviews and we're still going to be hopefully speaking to some brilliant people. I'm really pleased to announce that I've got a new co-host. And if you have been listening to the podcast since the very first one, and I'm sure most of you have, then uh, this is someone you'll recognize. So say hello. Hi, everybody. Hi, Stuart. My name is Sean Conway Wood. I'm the founder of Ethical Hour. And I think I was the first guest on the podcast. Yes, yes, you were. So it's fantastic to be here as a co-host. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you so much for doing it. I think it's going to be really interesting. And as we say, we are going to sort of mess around with the format a little bit. We're, we're going to have a few new sections and we're going to try and do some new things. But this podcast, we thought, would be a good opportunity just to introduce you to Shan as a co-host if you've not heard the first podcast. And if you haven't, you should go back and listen to it. And also to just do a bit of a roundup of last year and things that interested us and things that we thought were, were quite cool. And then also do a little bit of a look ahead at things that we think might become important or interesting over the next year or so. Yeah, what a time to be doing this, really, because we were just chatting before we started recording, but obviously we are still very much in the pandemic. And where we kind of got to there was talking about the impact the pandemic is having. And I think it's such an exciting, in some ways, time to be working in the marketing space because so much is changing. And I think that's going to make for really interesting discussions over the next year. Yeah, I think you're right. The whole sort of platform is changing a bit. You know, there's obviously a lot more social media marketing, there's a lot more kind of digital stuff. Now, digital account for everything. There was a point digital was a very specific thing. And now TV, radio, all this kind of comes under that digital banner. You know, there's been a lot of changes and I think there's a lot more to come. I agree. I think also the pace of change is interesting because obviously the pandemic was an accelerator to a lot of these trends that were happening anyway, but may have been on five, 10 year timelines. And then we're suddenly on, we need that now. We need to be digital first. We need to be communicating with our staff and our community and our customers in different ways. Things were changing overnight, you know, and regulations were changing and businesses were adapting, but actually the communications was the thing that needed to drive that. And I think there will be a lot of lessons learned from that. And there will be a lot of trends that move forward from that um, and kind of we might have seen them happen you know over the next decade and we might actually see them over the next couple of years now so I think it's quite an overwhelming time to be a marketing or a communications professional so hopefully with some of the segments we're going to put in and some of the things we're going to do we can demystify some of that and share advice and experience from people that are doing this work because a challenging time. Yeah I think that the whole industry and everything around it has changed massively but not just that as you say I think communications in general I mean pre-pandemic would we have been able to record a podcast quite as easily as we can doing it over Zoom? I think that that is a sign of how things are changing in communications in general, because you can now hear from experts from across the world that you might not have had access to previously. Absolutely. And I think we've really come to value community, but we've also, which sounds really cliched, but we've also begun to rethink what community means because you couldn't go out and you had to stay in, you had to connect online and colleagues that you would have connected with in your office, you were meeting them on Zoom. It's a little bit of a sore topic for me because just before the pandemic hit, Zoom went public and I had been using Zoom for several years and said to my husband, I'm going to buy some shares in this company because I use this company all the time and they're going public and I think it's going to be a good investment. And he said, oh, no, don't worry about buying those shares. And then we all know what happened. So that's a little bit of a sore topic for me. But I'm very glad in many ways that obviously we have the technology that we have. We've been able to connect in the way that we connect. And that's always been a real big part of the work that I've done. I've always worked digitally and and I think it's great to see that catching up in other industries and to see brands and companies really embrace that. Um, but I think that does bring a lot of challenges in terms of maybe getting it wrong. I think we're going to see a lot more kind of crises and, and problems and things. So I think it'll be interesting to explore how we navigate this ever changing but rapidly changing space. 
And that sort of brings us on to the fact that that is something that is going to be a part of this podcast moving forward. So we felt that a good segment to introduce to the podcast this year would be around when things don't go right in marketing. And um, we've all seen brands handle things badly or face a Twitter storm or a pile on. And I think there's a bit of a fear around kind of cancel culture and this kind of thing happening. The more and more outspoken brands are starting to be. So obviously our listeners generally work in communications, work in marketing, are possibly feeling a bit of that fear themselves, are maybe handling situations like this. And we wanted to do a bit of an analysis of that and where brands get it right, where brands get it wrong and what we can learn from that. So alongside my role as founder of Ethical Hour, I'm also a director at 181st Street, which is a communications agency. And one of the things that we do is crisis and risk. My colleague Andrew is a real expert in that area. So we thought he would be a great special guest for this segment. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you for the nice introduction, Sean. My background is in spin. So my job is to effectively manage risk. So every time you post an ad, every time you send out a press release, every time you try to bury bad news on a Friday, long and short of it, my job is to balance that, make sure you're not overexposing yourself. And then when it does go wrong, find a way to mitigate the risk. The damage has been done, but it's about making sure that you've recovered from the damage as best as you can. So you might not get back to 100% strength, but we can help you get back to 90, 95 on a good day. So we've got a bit of an interesting one that caught my eye for the new year to kick us off. And that was the recent Peloton story. So for anyone that hasn't followed this or has lost track of it, because it's got a bit convoluted, they've done the reboot of Sex and the City, the new program, which is called And Just Like That. Spoiler alert, in the first episode, the major one of the major characters is on a Peloton and ends up having a heart attack and dying in a very dramatic scene. And they kind of built it up all the way through the episode. And it looked like product placement for Peloton. It obviously wasn't. Um, it turns out that the producers had literally just bought a Peloton. They, the brand knew they were going to be in the episode, but they didn't know what was going to happen at the end of it. And then it got quite interesting because Peloton's share price absolutely plummeted when the episode aired. They then had to release a statement from a medical advisor, basically analysing the health of this character and the fact that he had previous heart conditions. He'd had a heart attack before. He ate a lot of red meat and drank a lot of red wine. So he was at high risk and basically saying your Peloton is not going to kill you. It's actually going to reduce your risk of dying of a heart attack. So please don't abandon your Peloton because of this episode. And then they did something very creative. So Peloton then worked with Ryan Reynolds' ad agency. And his whole thing is about using humor and comedy to turn things around, but at a Hollywood level production. So they hired the actor who had played the character to do an advert that continued that storyline that showed that he wasn't dead. He'd actually run away with his Peloton instructor. And it was really creative. It was really quirky. It seemed to turn things around for them. And then real world issues came in and had another impact in that the actor himself was accused of sexual assault under the Me Too campaign by, I think, several different women. And Peloton then had to pull the ad. So it was kind of a bit of a whirlwind week for them from bad times with the episode going out and then pulling it back with the ad and then having to pull the ad so yeah I thought an interesting one to to kick us off and to talk about Peloton did exactly the first thing that you should always do go silent for an hour just take an hour figure it out there's no rush to to deal with this stuff especially at that scale okay your share price is plummeting but a good response is better than a quick bad response so it's worth taking the time. So they obviously got in touch with Ryan Reynolds, people at Maximum Effort, who are famous for doing these funny, light, often very humorous responses and retorts. Now, they got that out incredibly quickly, and it did help the share price. However, the problem with that is that they effectively endorsed the character. And the problem with endorsing the character is you endorse the actor in the same breath. So the best thing they could do at that moment is pull the ad. But I noticed they left it up long enough to make sure coverage was spread. 
Because at that point, you've got two jobs to do. You've got to deal with the fact that you're being hit from multiple sides over the fact that effectively a massive brand, massive TV show has just basically said, this thing will kill you. None of that is true, but that's what everybody's thinking. So you've got to deal with that. On the flip side of that, you've also got to get away from the actor that you've just spent probably a small fortune, but when your short share price is falling a pound a minute, you're not messing about with how much it costs to fix it. Obviously for smaller brands, you're not gonna have the same thing. So you've not got the time pressures, but for them, they had to do something. And I noticed that they left it up for as long as they could get away with. They didn't pull it the instant they knew, they waited just long enough to make sure it, the ad had had its impact. And we all know about news cycles. With Twitter, a news cycle is four or five hours. All they had to do at that point was last out that news cycle, or rather pretend they haven't heard the other news long enough to have actually broken that down. And the second thing is pull it and say, we did not know. It is not our responsibility. We were responding to another thing. It's not our fault. And I think Peloton got away with that relatively lightly. If they'd run two or three of those ads, I think it would have been a different question. On the whole, then, do you feel that Peloton did quite a good job? Um, Yes and no. I think there were better things they could have done. I would not have bothered in any way, shape or form with video. I'd have had him in Times Square for four hours on a bike with a big sign behind him on a Peloton stage. You'd have achieved the same thing, but it would have gone viral much quicker. You wouldn't have had to worry about the endorsement and you could have put it up on the giant screen in Times Square. Live stage events are much more effective these days than video. I know what they were trying to do, but actually I don't know about anybody else because we haven't really talked about the video itself. I thought it was a little bit tacky. Yeah, it was a bit. I mean, Sex and the City isn't exactly the most highbrow. I love it, but it's pure trash. It's the equivalent of reading a fashion magazine. I think actually the thing that I've heard the most about is the statement that they made after it had happened before this video came out the medical expert saying about his pre-existing conditions and things because it just felt a bit ridiculous that a brand was having to make that level of medical comment on a fictional character but then you think about it and actually it was a very influential show in its day you know they're trying to put a lot of things right that were problematic around diversity and things so it is getting talked about and it is getting media attention And then that became one of the things that I was hearing a lot of people talk about. I didn't actually hear many people talk about the video. I saw it and people said, oh, you know, it's clever. But I don't think it achieved that level of viral attention that they were hoping for until the real world news broke. So I think it possibly didn't have the impact they were hoping anyway. And then obviously had a negative impact at that point. Do you think the statement was worth it? I mean, what did it do to share price? <laughs> what it comes down to, I guess. Well, the share price was already falling at that. Yeah. But the statement will have affected the share price because that is some that is a proper official thing from Peloton talking about an imaginary character. That means they're worried. But the question is, did they panic and respond too quickly? Could they have let it die out over 48 hours? Is it really going to affect the share price that much? Sometimes the best thing you can do just sail on through and keep quiet but at the same time what the the doctor effectively said was do not ride one of these if you've ever had a heart attack i wonder how many people are currently throwing away their pelotons as a result of that i never thought of it from that perspective but you're absolutely right it's saying that you can't use a peloton to its best ability unless you're already fit to start with that's maybe not why people buy a peloton yeah that's true i hadn't thought about that either but if you look at how much they cost, you're looking at AB from the NRS scale, for those of you who are unaware, upper class, middle class, earning 45000 a year or more, because you're going to have to have super fast broadband, you're going to have to be able to lay down, what, nearly £2,000, and, and then a monthly subscription on top. Um, you are not talking about the healthiest people on the planet at that point, because if nothing else... We're all getting on a bit if we can afford to spend that much money on what is a very fancy bicycle that doesn't go anywhere. I mean, it's worth noting that Peloton share price fell when it turned out that President Biden couldn't have one. 
because he famously used one that really helped the share price. He couldn't have one in the White House gym because it had to have a Wi-Fi connection and camera to work. So he couldn't physically have it because they couldn't secure it. And that hit the Peloton share price too. It's not just that they're facing attacks from what happens if an imaginary character has a heart attack on one. It's also how do you fit one in your home? How do you make it part of your life? They're a status symbol. That's all great and good. I'd point out that Peloton's share price has been down over the last year. They're one of those brands that did exceptionally well out of the pandemic. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think they're very much a brand who were artificially inflated over the, that incredibly strange time where a lot of brands who just had, had been around, for, in a lot of cases, been around for a long time, found a niche for a short period of time. What I would say on that is that when you assess your brand risk and somebody in every business should be assessing their brand risk at least quarterly in terms of what your exposures are, I mean, from incredible unforeseen risks that will destroy your brand but there's nothing you can do about it i'm thinking and kensington and chelsea council with that one um to smaller things just where your ceo isn't towing the line in the right way and could open you up to sexism or anything like that or just not quite speaking in the way the brand needs so even if that's just tweeting about his local football club everybody should be doing those assessments the fact that the peloton can be attacked like this and it's having an impact and a sustained impact suggests they're not protecting and stewarding their brand in the right way because for example the risk assessment on the show should have been do not put our object in it unless we know what you're doing with it. But basic risk management and basic control and basic systems and processes, just even a tick box somewhere in the system would have sorted the Peloton problem. 90% of crisis is avoiding it happening in the first place. Why is it interesting? That's my first question, because I'm looking, I've looked at this story a couple of times today, and I cannot figure out why the world said this is a thing. I get why it ended up being interesting, but the Peloton responses themselves, I don't think they, the video got the cut through it should have done. I'm with Sean on that. And I don't think leaving it up an extra day would have made the difference. I don't, I think the doctor's statement was actually very, very risky. And if it had been risk assessed properly, I, I don't think they'd have given it because they effectively said, don't ride these things if you are ill in any way, shape or form. It's your own fault if you carpet. The Peloton response isn't necessarily well done. And you just start to wonder, is it all a bit of a mess? I think it was the quickness of the turnaround for a really big brand. I mean, the advert may not have had the effect, but what it was was a Hollywood-style production done incredibly quickly. I think that's the intrigue in it. I think it's the speed. The fact that on the front of it, it looked like it was a good thing, but actually the more you delve into it, the more you think, actually, was this a very big waste of money? And this would be my thing, is the one thing we teach absolutely everybody is don't react immediately. You find the right people, you talk to them, you have the conversations, you figure out how to do it, and you do it once. It's a bit like DIY, measure twice, cut once. You only get one shot to fix it. And Stuart, I'm with you. I think there's all that money to achieve what? Just a different type of risk. We're a marketing podcast. What would you two have suggested instead? I honestly think I would have recommended Do Nothing. Having seen the episode, I think the reason it was interesting and it garnered attention was partly because no one was expecting that to happen to that character. It had got so much media attention about what is going to happen in the reboot that he actually filmed scenes that he wasn't in. So I think partly it was the attention around, oh my goodness, where is it going to go from here? What's going to happen? I think by the, by episode two, it would have died. And I also think the reason it was so interesting was because the whole way through that episode, there was so much focus on this Peloton that it felt like it had to be product placement. And then at the end, you were like, no way was that product placement. They've just killed him off using the Peloton. So I think 
that would have completely died off by episode two and everyone would have just been talking about the outfits and the storylines and he's gone now that's the end of that and you would have been like okay that wasn't product placement they didn't know about it off we go yeah i think you're right i'd be really interested that had this happened 20 years ago before we had social media before we had that instantaneous reaction whether i don't think they would have bothered i think you're exactly right that went on to the next episode i also would question whether the people that would drive down the peloton share price are the people that would have seen the advert that they put out in fun it's really i think it's interesting and i think what they did was was an attempt to, to combat it, which I think was, was interesting to see. Felt a little bit weird that you'd have a character that was apparently well-loved, loved his wife, etc., to then be seen with his Peloton instructor having an illicit affair, having faked his own death to get out from his wife. Doesn't feel that like that's maybe the right moral message you want for your Pelotons. Do, do you want to buy a Peloton because the person, the Peloton instructor is likely to steal your husband and he'll fake his death? Maybe isn't the best. I think that's part of the problem. I think for me, this whole thing just reminds you of how subconsciously all these messages get in your head. So we've got, okay, my Peloton might be a security risk because the president can't have one in the White House. That's not great. I might have a heart attack if I get on it because I'm not in the best shape because that's what happened in Sex and the City. And okay, now he's run off with his Peloton instructor. (laughs) all of these things in your head and not really making a great case for buying a Peloton, if I'm honest. I would be interested. I don't actually know exactly the time the share price started to fall, but I'd imagine at the open. My thing would be, did the share price fall because he died or did it fall because they responded? Because Stuart's right. Let's be honest, the the, the video afterwards isn't going to be watched by the people with the money. You're talking about traders, statistically unlikely to be watching Sex in the City. So the, the point I'm trying to make is that Peloton seems to have panicked about their share price. The result of that panic was sending a doctor out to say, don't use our machines. If you've got existing conditions, check with your doctor. Everybody knows machines like that come with a label that says exactly that for legal reasons. But saying it publicly from a podium that says Peloton HQ or whatever it said is dangerous. And it's the panic that causes you to do that. Yes, your share price is struggling. Yes, it's falling again. But running out and saying something like that will make a market panic. You've got to be measured. You've got to know what you're saying and why. Not only that, but combine it. Make it if you're going to make a joke out of it, you make the statement at the same time as the video. You push them out simultaneously. You throw out as much advertising spend talking about the good things that Peloton achieves, and you blanket everything with that. Reassure, but don't reassure until you know what you're saying. Otherwise, you will end up going outside and saying, don't ride this bike You know, if you've ever had a heart attack. Or, for that matter, under any circumstances where you don't think you're completely fit. Let's be honest. Most people aren't buying a bike thinking, oh, yeah, I want to stay in exactly the same shape I am. (laughs) Thank you very much, Andrew. The point of this segment is to talk about where people have maybe got it wrong. If there's any companies out there brave enough to come and explain to us maybe where you got it wrong and have a chat about what you might do differently, maybe see see what we thought about the situation and please feel free to contact us on podcasts at ethicalmarketingnews.com we would love to have you on one of the things we wanted to do in this sort of wrap up of 2021 reflection on what might be to come in 2022 was pick out some of the news stories that have been on ethical marketing news over the last year and and just kind of talk about the progress that's been made and and the good things we want to celebrate and actually one of them was around project show us and the representation of women in imagery and advertising and the media this is project hashtag show us which was a partnership between getty images dove and girl gaze And it's been running for a few years. And in March, they revealed the impact of the partnership and what they had discovered, really about how women are shown, uh, how they are viewed within the image library 
and it's really not just women, non-binary people as well. So it's really just representation, I suppose, across their platform and how people use it. What was interesting about this for me, when they published their impact, they were talking about the work still to be done and particularly around the intersections of which women and non-binary people are represented. And I think that came out of the Sex and the City conversation in that we aren't used to seeing women in their 50s represented in that way on our screens. But actually to change the narrative about how people are represented Presented and to move away from stereotypes and to create better representation and better inclusivity, we do need that representation in the creation as well. And I know that comes up a lot when you're talking about writing shows like that. If you're going to be representing a certain community, are members of that community involved in creating that material? I think that's one of the things that's really come out of the pandemic and the momentum that social movements were building pre-pandemic is that we have begun to realise how far we've got to go around diversity and inclusion to make it actually tangible and real and, and have an impact, not just be purpose washing. That was one of the other stories on ethical marketing news that we wanted to pick up on was the Visibility Project. The Visibility Project was by Procter & Gamble and Glad. This was basically a campaign to drive and sustain inclusion in ads and advertising for LGBTQ plus people. And again, over the last sort of 18 months, it, it feels like in some ways we've stepped backwards in how certain aspects of society are viewed by certain people. Because I think for the first time within my lifetime, I've slightly felt that something like having greater inclusion in advertising and media is hugely important. It's so important for people to see themselves represented within the media that they consume. When I was writing my book, I really looked at the role advertising has played in sustainability and greenwashing and that mind-blowing statistic that we are exposed to between 4,000 and 10,000 advertising messages a day. I think we are aware that we are consuming a lot of ads because we're scrolling and ads are in our feed. They're obviously on the television, they're on billboards. There's kind of traditional advertising media that we're used to and then there's the more subtle influencer advertising and advertising that doesn't feel like advertising but 10,000 ads a day we are not conscious of all of those and they are working at a subconscious level and obviously as communications people we know that the best advertising works subconsciously and that can work one of two ways if you see yourself included and if you see communities represented in a positive way then that can really make strides in inclusivity and in challenging stereotypes but if you see harmful stereotypes or you don't see any representation at all that is also having an influence the advertising industry can be one of the most powerful forces for change here and there are now campaigns around that which is really exciting there's creative campaigns in the sustainability space encouraging advertising agencies to move away from fossil fuel companies and obviously you've had Richard on from Stop Funding hate which again is targeting advertisers that's really really powerful and we can't underestimate how impactful advertising is in so many different ways something that ties into what we spoke about earlier and this is just some of the stats from that visibility project is that 81 percent of advertisers and 41 percent of agencies agree that an inauthentic execution of lgbtq people and scenarios would lead to a larger backlash than not featuring them in ads at all and that 61% of advertisers and 28% of agencies agrees that they are fearful of public backlash for including LGBTQ people in advertising. I can understand why brands are fearful when it comes to inclusion, diversity, taking a stand on social issues. I see it a lot with the brands that I work with in sustainability, that the ones that are actually doing it really, really well are scared to talk about what they're doing because they have a better understanding of what greenwashing is. They've looked at it and gone, we are not doing that. We're going to do it the right way. They then get the understanding that there's no way to be 100% sustainable. You know, everything has an impact. It's just about minimizing your negative impact and maximizing your positive impact. But the greenwashers do it in a way that makes it seem like sustainability is simple. You know, this is organic cotton, so it's sustainable. And we're actually watering down our understanding to the point where there, when there is a backlash and when people do challenge brands and brands aren't able to answer the questions and they, and they get cancelled or they get accused and, and it does go wrong, it can then be very scary if you are a smaller brand, even if you're doing it right, 
to start talking in case you get challenged. That's where we're at with some of these issues. The brands know they need to take a stand. They know that their customers and their employees want that, but they're not sure how to do it in a way that represents the communities that they are trying to represent in an authentic way. They don't actually want to get it wrong because they don't want to be cancelled. They don't want the economic damage like we've seen with Peloton when that does happen. But actually, they don't want to let down these communities. They know it's something they need to do. They don't know how to do it. And that comes back to who is in the room making the creative decisions and making the strategic decisions and designing that messaging. Because if there isn't representation in that room, it's not going to filter through in an authentic way to the end product, the end message, the end advert, the end image that goes out into the world. So let's hope that's one of the trends that we see this year then is the the kind of stronger commitment to representation and to really embedding this stuff within every level of the brand. That's the shift, isn't it, that we're now seeing is investors are looking at ESG, finance is looking at that, employees are looking at that. There's some brilliant stats around Gen Zs and, and people coming into the workforce that really want social, environmental purpose and inclusion embedded into the companies they work for and will actually make their decisions around that. Hopefully that's one of the trends that continues and actually isn't just a trend and is is part of a movement of change. I think one area where we're going to see marketers really take the lead this year is as the green claims code rolls out. This is a piece of guidance from the Competition Markets Authority in the UK about how to make sure that your sustainability claims as a business are legitimate and aren't misleading consumers. So it's not actually any new legislation as such, because everything in there legally is already covered. But what they found was they did a big review into green claims being made online by all sorts of different companies. And 40% of those claims were misleading and companies were greenwashing and making themselves look more sustainable than they actually are. So this is all about how you portray what you are doing or not doing sustainability wise in your marketing. And obviously there are going to be more and more targets, more and more legislation around things like the circular economy and net zero and more pressure from investors around the ESG stuff that actually all companies are going to have to have a solid sustainability policy. We know that consumers want brands to do the right thing when it comes to the environment. So they're going to have to embed that in their marketing to get cut through. And they're going to have to make sure that they're compliant with the green claims code because the CMA are now cracking down on these misleading claims and bringing consequences to the brands that are making misleading green green claim the person I think in an organization that is going to be responsible for that and making sure that that is correct is going to be the marketing person but because of the way that guidance has been put out and because of the heavy focus on the misleading marketing claims I think marketing and sustainability are going to have to work so closely together going forward and marketing people are maybe going to have to take more of an internal leadership role than they have in the past do you think that marketing has a image problem itself as a business because i i've often thought it has a little bit of one but i've always also thought that it's it's not deserved and certainly in the time that i've been doing it it's never felt that it's marketing at all costs and that you push everything on people but that might just be that i've been lucky enough not to work within that environment yeah i'm not sure i think I can see both sides of that, to be honest. I can see the the very unethical, pushy stuff still going on. And I can see the kind of evolution of that in the kind of thing that the Green Claims Code is aiming to tackle. You know, I'm not sure that it's always done because companies are evil. And, you know, I don't necessarily always subscribe to that because we've had a debate about Amazon before. I think so much has changed that actually the role of a marketer has evolved completely. And I actually think it's a really exciting job if you are passionate about creating change, because if you're doing it well, you are using behavior change to influence people and to make them do something different, whether that is buy a product, support a cause or whatever outcome you're trying to achieve. And you actually have to do that on two fronts now. You have to do that internally in the company to ensure that that is there and that their credentials stack up and that they can back up their claims 
whether this is on diversity or on sustainability or any other issue, before you can go out and tell the world about it. Because actually consumers are just so much smarter now and so much better connected and so comfortable in challenging brands and pushing back that actually the way we consume has changed and that has led to a change in the way that we do marketing. I think we're also connected to brands in a way that we've never been in the past because you follow a brand on Twitter or on Facebook and you, you're kind of getting stuff pumped to. It's weird that you kind of almost choose to be advertised to by the brands that you like in a way that we never would have had that access in the past. And I think it means that we expect a bit more from our brands because we're more invested in them. I think maybe we expect the brands we like to follow our ideals more because we now follow them. Absolutely. And if you look at the trends for and predictions for kind of the year ahead and, and even the decade ahead, personalization is one of the biggest ones in e-commerce and marketing and branding. And actually consumers want that really personalized experience. We don't mind being sold to as long as what you're selling us is useful and is going to deliver the promises that, that you're making and the change that we're desiring by buying that product. Instagram advertising and things, I don't hate it. It helps me find new products because I look at sustainable stuff all day it helps me find sustainable brands I then have to go and do the research to make sure that they actually are but I don't hate that as a consumer and I think people will opt in to that in order to get that personalized experience and those personalized recommendations and that will then expand out beyond just advertising you know we're seeing it in kind of email marketing for example it's not enough just to put people's names in the email you need to be segmenting your list and sending personalized emails to different segments and you really need to know your audience what they care about and who they are as people and how they make their decisions whereas in the past you maybe didn't need to do that so much but it's because of our relationship with things like social media and the fact that we all have a tiny computer in our hand for the majority of the day that knows exactly who we are, what we like and what we want from it before we even know that. So much of this stuff is subconscious and, and these platforms are so clever that we are having to, to keep up as, as advertisers and marketers. So another story that happened during the year that I really want to concentrate on because it's the Havas Media Group and their meaningful marketplaces. Now, if you're interested in this, please listen to the previous two podcasts, which had Ben Downing from Havas Media Group talking about meaningful marketplaces and quite a lot of initiatives that Havas are trying to do at the moment. But I just felt this was a really interesting thing because it's about how we consume media, about the media that we consume. And I think that's something that I know Jan's quite passionate about as well I think this is a really important move and I think it's such good timing because again not just the way that we consume advertising but actually the way that we consume news has changed and the impact of social media just can't be downplayed or overlooked here and we've seen that because we're recording this close to the anniversary of the insurrection in the US and that was really the boiling point of fake news which was perpetuated by the political advertising that goes on on these platforms the echo chamber that is created on sites like Facebook. And we really saw the real world tangible impact that the media we consume online can have. We've seen that in a positive way. And then obviously we've seen it in very negative ways as well, such as January the 6th. So I think this is a really brave move actually. And it's a really important move to start shifting potentially away from some of these platforms. I think we've got into a bit of a culture of these platforms are inevitable and the toxic nature of these platforms is inevitable because they're big monopolies and obviously there is investigation into how big they are allowed to be and especially in the US and the antitrust investigations that are going on with big tech. But in the meantime, while all of that brews on, sometimes as advertisers and marketers, we think that we have to use these platforms and we think that we have to engage at a certain level. And to actually take a stand and say, no, here are trusted news sources. Here is a more positive, impactful way of doing things, I think is really brave, actually. So the final story I'm going to mention is one that I have actually spoken about before. This is one of my favourite stories of the year, and it's about the living roofs at Clear Channel, who are probably the biggest out-of-home advertiser in the UK, put onto bus shelters within 
Leicester. And these are designed to get bees to come and pollinate. Just a way of building up the bee population, which is something that has suffered massively for in the last few years with no, no specifically known reason. But a lot of the thought of it is it's down to habitat. So this is just a way of giving more habitat to the bees. I just think it sounds like a brilliant idea. I love how simple this is. Take that dead space on the top of bus stops and just inject the biodiversity back that would have been destroyed to pave over the pavement and build the bus stop in the first place. It just shows that sometimes we overthink sustainability and we are thinking about, you know, technology that's going to exist in the future. And actually, sometimes it is just as simple as putting that green roof on and I know that downplays it I'm sure it wasn't a simple project to implement but I think it is just a really joyful and positive solution and just shows how accessible these things can be there are solutions and everybody can implement them you just need to look at what you can do I saw a really similar one that was in Australia and they had built public benches that you could lift up the bench and underneath was a community composting box because obviously community composting is a really good way of tackling food waste which is a massive cause of emissions because not everybody wants to or is able to have composting at home but the big objection to that is big ugly compost bins are not great build them into the benches and then there's compost there again really really effective simple solution it's nice when we're talking about all this kind of high-tech stuff that there's still all simple solutions to to issues to be found gives you hope doesn't it It gives you hope (laughs) and it kind of it's nice to have these things going on to the future Which very nicely cuts to what are our predictions for the future going to be? Predictions for this year. I feel like it gets harder and harder every year to do these predictions. (laughs) Because who knows what 2022 will bring if the last two years are anything to go by. (laughs) But I think some of the things we've already touched on, I think we're going to see more and more regulation and legislation come in around sustainability in particular. And I think the social issues as well. Companies are going to have to walk the walk on that. And I think that's a positive thing, not just because of the change that it creates, but also because it means that the companies that do that well have got some really exciting opportunities to be creative and joyful and solutions focused to really embrace this going forward. So that really, really excites me. I am a big fan of of the way that things like the Green Claims Code are going for marketers that are on top of this, that do have their risk management in place, that are feeling brave and creative and are embracing what marketing should be about, which is creating positive change. I think there are so many opportunities coming up this year and beyond. Something I touched on on a previous podcast, and I know I've mentioned to you, is I'm very excited about the potential for VR and AR marketing. VR is going to provide us with a series of new spaces to go into. I think Facebook, their creation of Meta is going to be an interesting place. It's going to be a a virtual place that will game change just because Facebook are so big. Everybody else that has tried to get involved in this kind of marketplace have been small fries. But my understanding is that it's something that Zuckerberg is very, very passionate about and will throw an awful lot of money at. And as someone who who uses a lot of VR on various formats, I absolutely love it. It will open up a totally new place and space for marketing and advertising. It's going to need a whole new set of regulations and rules, which is going to be interesting in itself. also the issues that come around with VR which are things like power consumption which is going to be hitting into the into the green Mm. things and I think that's something that's really came up recently with regards to Bitcoin and NFTs and yeah and the, the, the way that that has affected how power is consumed whether it's financially viable to to create this mm-hmm. stuff in the way that we are because although it appears to be that it's coming from nowhere it is having a massive drain on the environment and we are starting to see companies include that in their accounting now and actually accounting for their impact with the move towards more ESG focus so I think that's a very interesting time for all of these things to be coming together because it will raise those questions of should we be doing this if it is not great for the environment and how can we do it in a way that is positive on all of these aspects but I think you're right and I think virtual reality in particular has the potential to tackle a lot of the other issues that we've been talking about because it just has the opportunity to bring new experiences to you and obviously that that's what we've been talking about in terms of representation and inclusion. And you need to see it. You need to see representation in order to care about these issues. And I think if you talk to anyone in the sustainability space, 
the majority of them began really passionately caring about the environment when they went traveling and saw the impact that plastic pollution is having or climate change is having or on the social side you know the impact of poverty abroad and if you think how impactful travel can be and then the fact that we haven't been able to really travel for two years and then we've suddenly got this opportunity to embrace those new experiences in a different way through devices and through virtual reality that has a lot of potential I wonder if virtual reality is going to perpetuate our echo chambers or is going to be the thing that breaks down the echo chambers that have been created online. It depends on what you choose to consume, isn't it? And how you consume it. So if you're someone who is racist, are you going to watch a documentary about black people that will allow you to at least see the experience from another perspective? I'm not sure you are. And I'm not sure that even if you did, if it would have the effect it would have on on, yeah. on other people. That is difficult. Echo chambers is, have always been a thing, but it does feel like it's something perpetuated usually by social media. And I think as someone who voted Remain and who believed that absolutely everyone in the world was going to vote Remain because everybody I knew was absolutely voting Remain. And then when I suddenly started seeing the results coming in, it was a real eye-opener. Yeah. I think you're right. We are so carefully curated now. We have so much choice in the media that we could consume, the brands we could buy from, everything, that actually we have no choice but to carefully curate what we consume. And in doing that, we then create our own echo chamber and then social media perpetuates that. Yeah, you're creating your own confirmation bias, aren't yeah. you? Because you don't have enough time to do everything, as you say. You go for the thing that appeals to you and it's the thing that echoes your own thoughts on it. It's whether we as a society, we become more accepting, we become more mm. diverse, if we become, in inverted commas, better people as a society, then I think that will be reflected on everything. However, as I mentioned earlier, it does feel for the first time in my life that we are moving a little bit backwards. We are caring less. We are worrying more. There was a really interesting study that when people feel threatened, they are more right-leaning in their politics and when they feel more secure they are left-leaning and the methodology they used to determine that was really interesting in terms of creating an environment around people to make them feel insecure and unsafe and then asking them which policies they would vote for so it wasn't about party politics it was about policies we go more individualized when we feel threatened. I think we've got greater threat awareness now because we're in a 24 seven news cycle that is designed to make us anxious. We are on social media apps that are designed to make us anxious to keep us consuming on there. And we're living through a pandemic and we're at tipping points for climate change. We are naturally following that instinct to go more individualized. But what we have seen with the pandemic is that we can't get through it with that attitude. So I hope that this year, and I am an optimist, uh, I think you have to be if you work in anywhere near climate, otherwise you would just be in a hole crying. But I really hope that actually we're going to start seeing a shift. And I think some of the events, the pandemic obviously being one, January the 6th being one, we're starting to see the damage that we're doing with a lot of these attitudes, with a lot of these technologies that enable these attitudes um, and perpetuate them. And I think what the pandemic has done is give us that opportunity to really question, what do we want from the future? Because that answer starts to really percolate and come through. There's going to be some very interesting times ahead. But I guess this kind of leads us on to the final thing that we'll do is so what have you been enjoying? What are you looking forward to apart from I hear there's a good book coming out? Uh, I hope so. <laughs> so yes, I do have my book coming out on February the 17th. It's called Buy Better, Consume Less. And it is all about what I've just been talking about, how we change our attitude to consumption. And from a marketing point of view, it looks at greenwashing and advertising and the role that all of these things have played in creating and perpetuating the climate crisis and the pressure on individuals to solve a global crisis. The subtitle is Create Real Environmental Change. And it's actually about how we push back, how corporations take responsibility, how we become citizens and not just consumers, and how we actually fix the climate crisis, hopefully. And what I've tried to do is be very solutions focused and look at some case studies of countries and companies and individuals and campaigns that are doing really well and are really solutions focused and are working. 
because I didn't just want to, this to be theoretical. I wanted it to really inspire and, and create that hope. So hopefully, Stuart, after February, you're going to be feeling a lot more optimistic. <laughs> I'll be much more optimistic after. But I've got it. I've got it. Uh, I've got it pre-ordered. So what have you been enjoying? What are you looking forward to? I actually haven't really done much forward thinking yet for the year because I am just really enjoying living in the moment. And I realised through the pandemic that I have never really done that before. I've always been about, you know, setting goals and, and having financial targets for my business for the year and all of that kind of stuff. And actually the pandemic was a bit of a pause to sit in the now and understand that you can't control necessarily what's coming. So I am actually really enjoying being in the moment, connecting with some really interesting communities and people and really seeing a lot of these ideas start to come through. And I think what I'm looking forward to is when people have had the breathing space, I don't know when it's going to be, so I can't guarantee that it's going to be this year because who knows what's going to happen with COVID. Hopefully it's going to be this year. But I think long game, when people have had the time to sit with those ideas and to get to a bit more stability, when those ideas start becoming action, that's going to be a really incredible time. I'm very optimistic considering I'm living through a plague. <laughs> what are you looking forward to, Stuart? Yeah, I'm just looking forward to being able to go and see shows again. I'm looking forward to just going to the occasional gig. It's just really that kind of thing, getting back to seeing friends. You know, I've really missed being able to see friends. I, yeah. I think of myself as not a particularly sociable person. And then I go through 18 months in which I don't, I hardly see another person apart from my partner. And I just suddenly think, yeah, it would just really be nice to meet up with such and such and go for a, go for a pint or, or something like that. So as I said, I'm, I'm looking forward to the world just being a bit of a nicer place. I'm looking forward to some great podcasts as well. Me too. I'm looking forward to getting some guests on and interrogating some of the good stuff that's happening and, and the creativity and, and the ideas. And I think what you're touching on is that we're all just yearning for those genuine connections. And I think I, I think we'll see some stunning marketing. I think we'll see people really picking up the baton and going with it. I'm looking forward mm -hmm. to seeing from having spoken to Ben, I'm looking forward to seeing what I have asked do next. But there's other brands that I'm really interested in seeing what they do. It's such an exciting time. And I'm very honoured that you've invited me to co-host the podcast. Something I'm very excited about. Well, I'm very pleased that you agreed to do it. So if anyone's got any ideas as well, you can drop us a line at podcast.ethicalmarketingnews.com. We'd love to hear any ideas or any thoughts that you've got. Well, thank you for, for joining me. That's Thank you so much. Stick with us. Please hit the subscribe button. See you soon. And that's it for today's podcast. Thank you very much for listening. This podcast was edited by Stuart Mitchell. The music was by Joe McCafferty. We look forward to seeing you for the next podcast. Mm -hmm.